reflecting meditation, contemplation, this way of, of uh, using Dhamma, which is not, which is uh, developing the intuitive awareness to be able to contemplate is not, not a rational process of logic and not being logical and, and uh, about anything, but being aware, being the watcher and the witness, the observer, the knower. So like the, the Buddha is the knowing. Buddha implies uh, it, it, it can be a person. You can, that's why you can have Buddha images. You can make make Buddha into a, a human form because the Buddha Buddha awareness is something that is that is natural to us in our human space. That's why Buddhas can be born in the human realm. Or the, the, the word itself means the, the one, the, the knowing, ability to know things as they are. So contemplate is this, this ability to know. Each one of us is living a, a lifetime in a separate form where we have to experience all different kinds of unpredictable things that can happen. The, the natural process of the uh, aging of the body and the, and the contingencies that uh, we experience through a lifetime as a separate entity. And so there's this knowing of it. We know when something is impinging on us. And it's not just knowing about something abstractly, but this, this form of knowing is, is direct awareness, it's, in, it's intuitive, it's, it's immediate to the present moment. But for, for many people, we, we, aren't, we, we don't use this, this very much. We tend to live in a world of abstract projections. We create ourselves, we create other people, we create a society uh, that we we, we, so we experience life through a lot of filters, through a lot of perceptual conditioning that oftentimes is very, very bad. We can see things in very distorted ways. We interpret life uh, from all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. If we don't awaken to the way things are, like what's happening, you're reading the newspaper, the two little boys that were murdered the other day, the little girl that was killed, the, the 6,000 uh, Bosnian Muslims that were assassinated last week, and where is that coming from? Is that, you know, why do people do things like that? And it's because they they see through uh, through all kinds of distortions that we commit atrocities or persecute each other or do do the, the things that we do, and it's it's more it's to me 
it seems more miraculous that that it isn't worse than it is. <laughs> I mean, it does show you that, that basically we're very good. We want, we we incline. We want to be good. We don't want to be bad. Otherwise, there, there would be more of that going on than there is. But we are shocked, even you know, aren't we? When we read about little girl, seven-year-old girl being uh, raped and murdered, and that is something in this that is profoundly shocked and uh, disgusted by this. So the aim of the Buddhist practice is to is to learn to awaken the mind itself. Because we, we become lost in our own uh, conditioning. So, for example, uh, the, the, um, the empty mind, when we talk about the empty mind or the non-self, it is shunyata or anatta. These words are very significant in Buddhism or Nibbana, nirvana, cessation, niroda, viraga is desirelessness. These are pointing to the absence of things. So it's we don't notice. We we are we we are usually conscious of of absence, but of things of, of presence of things. So we give a lot of significance to. What we what we what we are conditioned to perceive, if if we don't have a perception for something, if we don't know what it is, we tend to ignore it. And so you can see, like very unsophisticated people with very narrow vision of things and see things in very rigid ways, they they have to ignore a lot of their own experience because it they have no way of perceiving it or accepting it in, in conscious experience. So they tend to, to label it like that's the devil. I mean, I've been accused of being a Satanist, a devil. Venerable Sobhana, when he went on his uh, Dutanga walk, through, it started in Greece at Mount Athos. The monks at Mount Athos accused him of being a devil worshiper. Because uh, in the Orthodox religion, uh, Mount Athos is very conservative. They said, well, they, they even think the Roman Catholics are worse. <laughs> <laughs> At least they let them in the plate. <laughs> because your perceptual range is very fixed, isn't it? And you see anything that doesn't fit maybe into the, the uh, Eastern Orthodox perceptual range as being alien, so it's bad. Foreign, it's bad. Uh, different, it's bad. It's a kind of simplistic logic. Isn't it? Anything that doesn't doesn't fit neatly into your perceptions of what is acceptable and right and good, then it's bad. And you, you have no way of of, uh, of dealing with it other than than just putting it all in one category. Like fundamentalism does that in. Christianity or, or any religion where you you, uh, you just lump everything together 
and saying it's heretical or it's bad. Everything that you don't understand. But notice in, in like in with uh, with, with uh, Buddha Dhamma, we're not we're not trying to we're not trying to perceive right and wrong in fixed ways or good and bad as fixed positions. But with intuitive awareness, mindfulness, then you're you're developing a uh, wisdom your wisdom faculty, where then you begin to see you begin to to intuitively be aware of goodness as in the present moment, no matter what it looks like. It doesn't have to look like Buddha or Jesus. Because your intuition is picking up on, on it uh, in the immediacy of a moment, rather than projecting onto it prejudices, biases, Preferences and that that we would tend to do if we if we were if we're not being mindful. It's like foreigners. If you get in conservative communities and the foreigner is a is a is a kind of pejorative word. He's a foreigner, meaning he's not one of us. So you lump everybody that doesn't fit into into your our national identity as a foreign. And it always has a sense of, we don't know what they might do. We don't know what what they're going to do. They might pick their nose or do something disgusting <laughs> <and> embarrassing. <laughs> or alien. But in a reflection, we can observe this. Uh, observe that in your own mind. We're not trying to pretend that we're we're just super tolerant of everything and that we're Buddhists who are just completely kind of accepting of everything and understanding. These are ideals, you know, that we might have of being very, very tolerant, accepting, understanding, uh, compassionate, for all sentient beings, for the suffering of all others. Uh, we hold no, we have no prejudices, class prejudices, ethnic prejudices, racial prejudices, gender prejudices, religious prejudices. We're completely free of that. We try, we try to pretend. But then you notice that in moments these, that certain things do arise. Like you can, like here in Britain, just the way some accents are. You can, you, you know, people, you, British people can feel themselves going into a state of tension. And it doesn't really affect an American very much. <laughs> and these are, these are conditioning because we have certain Biases that are that are conditioned into us through cultural class conditioning, and they're they're there whether you know, whether we want them there or not. They still they still affect our conscious experience. So with intuitive awareness, we can notice these things. Just attentive awareness, and you begin to to pick up just where you you tend to cringe or tend to 
where you feel offended or where you feel uh, frightened or threatened or averse or fear, you know, by the way somebody moves or the way somebody looks or their accent, the color, whatever. You can, you know, we're not trying to pretend we, that, that we're, we don't have any, any kind of reaction, but we can observe the reaction we're having. And so then, this, this ability to observe is our refuge. This, this which is a witness, the observer, the knower, is where you need to, that's what you need to trust. Not in the reaction as being, I mean, whatever your reaction is, it is that. You can't, you can't just make yourself react according to all your tolerant idealism. But you, you can be aware of, of reactions that maybe are intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, cruel. Only these different emotional states, we can we can at least notice them in terms of dhamma. What is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. Now, in the cessation of things, when we begin to accept what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. I mean, it doesn't mean we like it or we approve. We're not asking to you to, to say what you feel is right or good or make or try to justify it. We're not trying to justify what we're feeling. We're just learning to notice what we're feeling like this. Sometimes most feeling is, is very hard to describe. How many of you can really accurately describe feeling? How do you feel right now? Oh, man, I feel Because <laughs> <laughs> feeling is, is not, is, you know, we have, we have words to, to kind of point to feeling, but feeling is like this. It's, 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 uh, it's, not, it's not intellectual, it's not, it's not a... Uh, a symbol of anything, it's an immediate experience. It's like this. This is a sense realm. This is a feeling realm that we're living in. Now the the transcendent when we talk about transcendent in religion, or like in Buddhism, the realization of Nibbana, or enlightenment. This is, don't see this as something remote. I'm talking to people, to, to Buddhists in this country, and, uh, and uh, Buddhists in general, uh, we've, we've elevated enlightenment to, to such a high state that, none, that nobody thinks they could ever reach it. And is, was that what the Buddha was doing? Is that, is that the Four Noble Truths? Is, uh, is the 
was the Buddha placing enlightenment in such a high place that only, uh, only you know, only a very special, special kind of human being could ever realize that or experience enlightenment. And somebody was telling me the other day, well, the Buddha was enlightened because he had all these Baramitas, all these previous lives as Bodhisattvas, where he developed all these virtues, and uh, and so he could get enlightened. That was 2,538 years ago. And if it, and if there, if, it, if only somebody like, you know, only one person can get enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, then what are we doing here? It's not a waste of time. <laughs> but the Buddha also is a he. You know, he left. We're 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 called like sawaka, or those who who follow the teaching of the Buddha, Savaka Sangha. And so we, we don't have to discover the Four Noble Truths or anything like that. Already the Buddha provided us with the, all the clues and the conventions and the guidelines. It's a matter of just using it, making it work. But one of the big problems that we all face is in the Western world, especially, is is that we have very strong social and cultural conditioning, with a high sense of individual, uh, 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 giving a lot of importance to being an individual. So, we have very kind of exaggerated egos. We 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 make a lot of ourselves. I noticed in the monasteries, and living in a Thai monastery uh, in Thailand, where the ego isn't is, is the ego's more connected to a community, to a to a to a to a culture, to a family and community and a nation. Uh, the Thai Thai cultural conditioning is it's it, the identities are are more connected in terms of responsibilities and being part of a wider group. But I know from the American background that I'm from, the, we were conditioned to <coughs> emphasize our complete unique separateness, individuality. I was brought up to be a unique individual, not to be a member of any community. So we're full of ourselves. We think. Um, uh, I just came back from America, and, they, and you can hear, hear the, 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 I want this, I don't like that. It, it, uh, I will have my rights. Americans are always demanding their rights. And uh, everything is me, me, and my rights. What I think and what I want. And, and so it, the, the sense of importance of one's views, one's opinion, one's presence, one's personality, one's soul, oneself, are, are very strong uh, perceptions that affect what we're doing in, in Buddhist meditation. 
So, even though we, when we meditate, we can be coming from a very self-centered position that we're not aware of, because it's, it's so ingrained in us. We, 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 may, we may not uh, know how to get any perspective on, on that sense of our self as a person, personality. So how do you get behind your personality or your cultural conditioning or the conditioning you you acquired before you learned to read and write? Those first five or seven years of your life, where you you uh, you're, you're you're developing a sense of yourself, where a lot of is just implied through uh, through just the attitudes of parents, of relatives, of teachers, of religious people, and the class, the ethnic identity that's there. It's just the way everyone thinks and everyone assumes is just normal and right. And we, we acquire all that during those, those uh, first seven years. Without, nobody's trying to kind of make you acquire it. It's just a natural that uh, you're, you're receiving whatever whatever is coming at you, good or bad. See, like a, a baby when it's born, his mind's like a like a like a tabula rasa. Empty, white, blank, with nothing on it. And then we start writing things on it. I am, and uh, and so, how do we get back to the tabula rasa, the empty mind? Because when you start trying to do it as an ego, you can't do it. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna empty my mind. Try to do it that way, just as an active wheel. I'm, I'm gonna empty my mind now. And see, see how far you get with that one. Well, of course, I'm, I have these problems now. But if I sit on a zafu many hours a day, many days a week, many weeks a year. Then something will happen. <laughs> Hemorrhoids, maybe. <laughs> so, in this is where the uh, mindfulness is being able to to. Uh, Stay open to to the way things are. So we start with basic things like the breath and the body, the posture, very things that aren't connected uh, they, with the with the uh, social conditioning and the ego. It's like we use the, the posture. We begin to notice just the, the the way the body is: the sitting, standing, walking, lying down posture. Just beginning to acknowledge that right now, what is your body doing? Sitting. Very simple, very obvious. Nothing, 
complicated about it. There's no mystical significance to it. It's just the way it is, isn't it? Right now, everybody's sitting. But my body is sitting here, like this. What is it? What does it feel like when it's sitting? And the ability to observe—I can't think of how to describe. How do how do I describe my body sitting? I mean, I can't. Well, I feel a little pressure here. And there. <laughs> I mean, you can you can kind of notice the more you know, like certain physical sensations. But just the ability to to contemplate the sitting posture is you're 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 opening your mind up. You're you're learning how to bring the body into your consciousness as something that is now. The posture, the sitting posture now is like this. And then you begin to be aware of, of just different sensations and and feelings and pressures and neutral things of the body. It's like like you usually don't aren't aware uh, very much of your body unless it starts giving you a lot of pleasure, a lot of pain. If it feels really good, you notice it. If it feels when it starts aching or hurting, you notice it. But when it's neither. We don't notice it. We we, we, are, we don't know how to. We we, we don't we, we just ignore the body until it goes into some more extreme state. So with meditation, we're we're beginning to turn our attention to the body using the posture. And the breath, the breathing, the anapanasati. The breath is inhale, exhale, it's like this. And then the, the, the formal meditation practices are to learn how to sustain attention on these, these things that we don't pay attention to. And in most of our education, we're not, we're not, we're not, uh, Taught how to sustain attention on one thing. We're, 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 most of us are educated to think in logical, rational ways. So it's easy for us to think and go from one thought to another <coughs> in logical sequence. We like that. We feel comfortable with that. It sounds intelligent, and it, uh, and it, and it uh, feels, you know, it feels right to, to be able to rationalize. But in, uh, like in samatha meditation practices, you're learning to take, focus on an object and sustain attention on one thing, which is, which is a different uh, uh, way of training the mind. It's quite difficult if you, if for most of us, if we, because we're so conditioned to, to think about things. So in Anapanasati, you're you're sustaining your attention on just the the inhalation, exhalation, and and using just that what's happening with that as a focus to learn how to 
bring attention to the breath and sustain <coughs> awakened awareness on the breath with the, the natural breathing of the body. Also, an attitude is one of learning to just be with it rather than to try to make yourself concentrate on the breath. And even the words are deluded. Right? Concentrate on the breath. We, we get this idea we've got we to gotta do something like willfully pay attention to the breath, which doesn't work. That's why we get so frustrated around upon the subject. Because uh, the way, even the words tend to delude us. Concentration on the breath is, to me, it sounds like you, you you find the breath and you concentrate on it. But what the the way that that it works is to relax with the breath. I think this is a more useful suggestion to learn to, to notice the breath like we're bringing just the breathing of our body into consciousness and then to just feel at ease with it, to just be with, relax into the breathing of the body. And this will give us, the, this, this way of talking I find more, more conducive to concentration than the idea of having to concentrate on the breath. Because one thing is that it becomes too theoretical. We, we get an idea in our head and then we try to do what's in our, what we think uh, is being, what we should be doing rather than really just being with what, the, what is, with the breath as it is. So this sense of relaxing. Relaxing into the breath, just being with it. Is as it is. But with the body and the breath, also you still have the there's still condition you may there, the body is forever changing, and uh, the condition that was born and will die. The breath is in its usual inhaling, exhaling habit. But that which is aware of the body and the breath, what is that? So this is why it would be like inquiring. So you're, you're, it's quite, what is it that the constant thing is, in, in it is like sustaining attention, that which is aware of the breath, that knows the breath is like this and the body is like this. It's not a thought, is it? It's not a, it's not a condition of the mind. It's a natural, the, the, the natural, state of the mind, the purity of the mind, is when is in this awareness. 
So the, the attitude then is more like a listening attention. Like, a, like listening to the traffic outside. And then we, we can project onto that traffic, can't we? Say, I don't like traffic. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> But we, we create that. But in, when we're just with, the, 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 when we're just attent attentive, without, without creating any thoughts onto it, then it's all right. We're not, we're not suffering, even if, even, if, even if they're still trimming the hedges, the U hedges, for cancer research and crop. <laughs> we could sit here and just concentrate on the sound of the hedge cutter. And, and as we begin to get the spirit up, practice more, we, we, we wouldn't create aversion onto the sound. Where otherwise, you might think, oh, that sound is ruining my meditation. You see the difference in how, when, when, we're, when we're coming from what we like, what we want, from principles and ideas and and uh, our own personal preferences and so forth, then we, then we tend to become very critical and averse to what's happening, either inside us or outside us. We're critical of ourselves, we're critical of each other, critical of the society, of the world. But in this state of just attentive awareness, you can rest in it. And you begin to find your refuge is, is, is resting in this awareness, trusting it. This is very simple. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not beyond your ability. It's not, it's not something that you can't do. But it's something we, we don't notice, so we, we, We've never, we've never appreciated. So as we say the faith or the trust in this awareness is what, what you know, I was talking about the refuges yesterday, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. That which is aware, that can listen, that can notice, that can know things as they are, before you start thinking about them, or loving or hating them. Ask yourself, then, in that state of attention, attentive awareness, when, when I'm just in that state, there's no sense of a self, of me as a person. I can get this way, I can, I can get beyond my own social conditioning, and get my own personality, just by listening, by being aware. 
There's no Ajahn Samhita. And then for Ajahn Samhita to, to come into being, I have to start thinking. But in the attention, uh, uh, witnessing, and that is, there's consciousness. There's, you're, there's conscious. You're not in a in a trance or anything. You're not uh, absorbed into anything. There's there's a, you're not you know absorbed into some some refined uh, state of of a conscious experience. You you can be right here, looking with eyes wide open, ears open. Totally receptive, but empty. There's no self. No. There's no. There's no. There's no attachment to anything. There's just this. This resting. In this aware, this ability to just be receptive and aware. In the present. To the body. To the breath. And we also begin to notice just the mood or the the emotion. So in the uh, four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana, this is given, these are the objects of the mind, the four foundations, the body, the uh, feeling, the jitta or mental conditioning, and the dhamma, the way it is. So uh, when we talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, remember that they're the objects that we're in, that we're observing. That there's this, this, this knowing. So, so the body, you know, Gayanupasana Satipatthana, the Vedananupasana Satipatthana, the Jitanupasana Satipatthana, and the Tamanupasana Satipatthana. We have Gai, Vedana, Jitta, Tamma. And so these, these are, so now, now notice the, the relationship is subject to objects. Mental objects or objects in the mind. Like consciousness is a function. Like you're conscious when you're when you're born out of your mother's womb, then you start life as a separate conscious entity. So consciousness is isn't culturally conditioned. Consciousness is a function. It's a natural function. So we're getting to, to recognize just this, a conscious awareness, awareness through consciousness, or however, however it works, is consciousness like this. It's like waiting, listening. And so we, 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 just to establish this mindfulness, we use the body and the breath as, as, as something to focus on at first, to, to learn how to establish awareness. 
have to pay attention to that which you, you're not, which you usually don't pay attention to, like the posture the, 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 of the body and the breath of the body. And then, as many of you know, I also use the sound of silence, the ringing sound, the primordial sound, kind of high-pitched background sound behind the sound of traffic. So if you listen now, just just uh, listen, listen to the traffic, and then there's a kind of buzzing sound or an electric scintillating high pitch. Now that gives you perspective when you begin to to develop that uh, uh, sustained listening on something that you don't generally notice, like the sound of silence. People don't don't usually notice it. It's, uh, we're we're so involved with ourselves and what we're thinking and, and our reactions. We don't we're, we're not aware. Except maybe when, when our egos drop away for a moment, suddenly you might hear it. Or you might think it's something wrong with your ears. You might think it's uh, you've got some ear problem. But it's this, but this is it's not a problem. It's, uh, it's just the way things are. Don't make anything out of it. Make it into a kind of I am now one with the universal sound kind of thing. <laughs> but people do things like that. They're always trying to to feel they've attained something in this life. And the the spiritual life doesn't work if you're if you come from that position. You've got to let go of everything. It's a total loss. Say, what have you gained, Tomato, for 30 years in the monastic life? Nothing. Have <laughs> 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 you wasted your life? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Everything I've gained, I've lost. If you gain something, you lose it. That's just the way things are. Though, I mean, if, if it's not a matter of gain. Because that's a worldly attitude. You, know, you, you gain uh, something, you get something, and you're going to lose it. But this is letting go, is, is, is letting go of that desire to gain to where there's nothing left but this, this purity, this, this natural state of purity that is so much with us all the time, but we're so unaware of it. Now, how many of you think you are a pure person? 
Anybody? <laughs> raise your hand if you. <laughs> if you if you are. Is it possible to have one second or one hundred? There must be something. <laughs> So you recognize that this purity is your natural state. It's, it's something that you that is with you all the time, never leaves, never gets stained, never lost it, never been soiled. And it's a matter of opening to it and recognizing it, rather than it's not something that you're going to find because it's here. But it, it's in letting go of everything that you begin to, to realize that true purity. Where when, on your personality, what do you think? What, what, what do you think you are? You think, well, I've got, I'm, I'm, you know, I have, I get angry, I'm jealous, I get, I'm frightened, I, I resent this, and I, I can be mean-hearted, and things like this. We, and, we, uh, and of course we exaggerate uh, our fault, too. To the point where they, they don't, they, don't uh, they oftentimes are not aware of their virtues very much. They're so obsessed with what's wrong. <laughs> so I mean, we do. We we are conditioned to think of ourselves as basically impure, don't we? As, as persons, as people. Adam and Eve did it. It's their fault. The woman's fault. <laughs> she got Adam to eat the apple. Her fault. <laughs> So I mean, basically, we we tend to see ourselves in terms of of sinners, of being sinners, of being impure. And I mean, whether you agree with it or not, it's all, it, those are the underlying assumptions of our culture, isn't it? In the West, Western world, in in uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, there's uh, this, the, the Near Eastern religions are th that that whole way of thinking tends to be based on uh, the idea that that we are we are sinners. That doesn't mean that we don't sin, or what I'm saying, but, but to recognize that purity is, is it's not, we're not claiming it as mine. 
on a personal level of, of I am pure as a person, but we are, we are beginning to recognize, realize it as our natural state of being. And we can open to it every moment, any moment, just by being mindful. This, this, this state of reflect, of like intuitive awareness. This, this, and it seems like nothing. It doesn't seem like anything. Where emotionally, we're expecting something great, like mystical experience with it. We want, you know, to do this thing of oneness with the whole universe, or <coughs> some kind of light coming from without, or, or some kind of dazzling ecstasy. You know, we read about the mystics, or about yogis, and, and uh, people that have had mystical experiences in the and uh, we, we, they can be phrased in terms that sound so dramatic, so fantastic, that we're primed maybe to, to think that it, that it is uh, some kind of high that we're aiming for, some kind of, of a high peak of ecstasy. But in the, the middle way of the Buddha, it's a subtle awareness and beginning to 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 say through investigation of Dhamma to to let go of the things we're habituated to to relinquish our grasping to relinquish to to renounce to to let go to relax to free ourselves from just clutching binding holding uh, on to to habits, to ideas, to thoughts, to emotions, to things. So when you're in a state of just attention, that's why I encourage you to trust in it. You need, you need that, we really need to trust, because it doesn't seem like anything. It seems like nothing. And emotionally, we, we, we can resist it. Go out and read the newspaper. And at least emotionally, we can relate to two little boys being murdered. That that's interesting. Isn't that disgusting? Isn't that shocking? How can we get emotionally caught up into that? But into the sound of silence and no thing. Emotionally, we feel frustrated. So that's why it's, it's learning to, 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 to be patient with your emotions. Not, you're not trying to suppress them, but just whatever emotional reactions you're having, accept them. They can be oftentimes very uh, negative toward the meditation and uh, very you know, restless or doubting or averse or whatever. But then you're you're in this you're in this position of the knowing where the, the conditions that arise cease. So you're letting your emotions that arise, you're let, allowing them to cease. You're not trying to get rid of them. You're letting them 
you're giving them the space, the opportunity to see. And the more you, you trust in that, then you'll find a sense of real peacefulness as a, as a result. A sense of just attention and peace, calm, and, and a clarity, mental clarity. Now this uh, this kind of practice is is um, based on the foundation. Of course, is to is uh, is based on moral responsibility, like not learning to to uh, be responsible yeah, to do to, <coughs> to do what is good and to refrain from doing what is what isn't. It's not just a passive kind of uh, just watching everything arise and cease in a, a kind of passive uh, uh, way uh, that is, means that you you can, uh, you know, that you somehow can't participate in life at all. But this allows you to participate in life in a way that that is uh, that, that is skillful and which you can learn from the experiences of your life. It's very interesting in monastic life how, uh, say, in the Thai system, for example, there is a, there is a, uh, like Ajahn Chah's style was to develop mindfulness around monastic life. We never had periods of, law of like meditation retreats as such. Or we we developed mindfulness around the discipline, the restraint, and the life quality of life of a monk in a forest monastery. So we had this this restraint in regards to action and speech through the vina, and then we had, uh, and then the, the practice uh, was to observe. Like, say, my mind, when I first became a monk, was very resistant to the restraints of uh, monastic life. Because I'm emotionally programmed to follow impulses. I'm an American, in California. <laughs> Do what you want, you know, express yourself. And... Uh, and you know, be creative and do your own thing with the with the philosophies of my that I previously held before becoming a monk. You said, "Well, you can't do this, can't do that. Restraint, mindfulness, and you say, God." <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was resistance to to restraint, but then that was the point: was to observe that resistance. Like Rinpo Cha is very good at getting you to look at what was happening in your mind. He's quite skillful at getting even even though he, that first year we we didn't have a common language to to communicate. He had he, he certainly could get across 
the way of kind of looking at what you were actually doing, thinking, in, in the monastic lifestyle of there. Then, then uh, in the Buddhist world, you find so many views and opinions about how to practice. And these never, the arguments about how to practice never seem to cease. You've got, you've got the Tibetan system, and you've got the, the Vipassana, and the Samatha, and you've got the, the Theravada, and you've got the Zen, and you've got Pure Land, and all the rest, and, uh, and then in, in just Theravada, endless arguments and opinions about how to meditate. And so, and, and just in, 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 in the fourth, in Ajahn Chah's monastery, and in, in our monastery. Because people tend to, to read the scriptures, get ideas, interpret things according to their own ways of, uh, of thinking. And they're not getting behind their own conditioning, their own kind of reasonableness, and their own intellectual gifts. And some of the blindest Buddhists are the most intelligent. <laughs> because they're so, they've got, and they're so intelligent, they, they, they impress themselves. They're, they're so reasonable. They're so utterly reasonable. But this is getting beyond being reasonable. To the, to the tabula rasa. The, the empty mind. And then you can see all these different, like Theravada, uh, Mahayana, all these things are just conditions that arise and season the mind. You even get it, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not holding your know, identities on, in, in being anything. Which means that you're, you're, you still, retain, you can still remain within a tradition, not don't have to throw it out, but you're no longer holding on to it. And then it works for you. It's something that is a good friend, that is a guide, rather than a fixed, just like, like what Dennis is saying the other night, it's the way we tend to grasp, like being a monk, you can, you can become very rigid by, by your idealism about monasticism. So it, it, you, you, you know, you, you become very fixed uh, and don't see what you're doing. And so then, after years of being a monk, it doesn't work. You're still full of yourself. You're trying to be a good monk according to the idealism that, that we have, like, like they'll have in the suttas and and they'll have these inspired passages about a, a proper bhikkhu, full of compassion, selflessness, uh, always is diligent in putting forth the right effort, and all these kind of marvelous ideas. And then, uh, and then you think, well, I'm going to do that. So you try to live up to these ideals at first. And you can only do that so long, and then it falls apart. You're trying to act like a good monk, look like a good monk, sound like a good monk, 
<laughs> and after a while, you begin to hate it. It's all phony, false. But if you're, if but because that that's because of attachment to the form and to the ideas you have. But in this moving through this space, spaciousness of the mind, like with this sound of silence. Uh, I encourage you to develop an awareness of that because then your mind is, is, is very wide open if you notice. Like if you're focused on something, you, your mind is fixed on a thing, on an object that, that tends to, you have to remove everything else. You're so focused that you reject all other impingement. But this, this silence allows, it's kind of like radar where everything is is, uh, is it's broad, it's embracing. So it it helps you to reflect from that because then you begin to you you can contemplate from that kind of receptive openness, intuitive awareness, and you can see what is suffering and what is non-suffering. You begin to to really note what dukkha is and and what not dukkha is, what self is and what not self is, as you're experiencing it. Now, most of us don't really, we know what grasping is and non-grasping, what desire is and desirelessness. And these are, and these are very clear states, they're not, it's not just uh, having ideas about nibbana and desirelessness and and that, but it's actually realizing, noting, knowing desirelessness, knowing anatta, knowing nibbana, recognizing. So then, what I've done, and sometimes I, I really uh, say, uh, like my emotional state, um, when I feel upset or threatened or whatever by something, I really I, be, I I make special effort to use that as an object, a mental object, and to to accept what I'm feeling, to to really, uh, and, and in the body itself, it's not just a, and it's not analytical at all. It's going to what does it feel like if I'm feeling uh, threatened by something, if I feel upset by what somebody said or offended, somebody said something that offends me. Then I, what does it feel like? What is the mood like in the mind? What is the body like? So I, I begin to, to notice. And go to that, to the, to the, to that uh, sense of being offended or being threatened by something, to somebody, accepting it for what it is, and then it ceases, and then you you begin, and then you note the absence of it. So you're you're, you're noting the presence and the absence of things. Of condition. 
So to be a person, what do you have to do? You know, so, so like, like listen to yourself, listen to, to your own personality. I'm like this and I should be like that and I shouldn't be like this and I'm like this and you're like that and I wish I wasn't like this and I wish I was like that and I shouldn't feel this way but I do and I don't want to be like this but I am and, and all that, and that, that the personality is, is it's boring isn't it the same old stuff It's boring to be a person. <laughs> Bore yourself to death. But even, like, but that which is aware, that which listens to the personality, what is that? You can hear yourself, can't you? You can hear yourself being somebody. He said that to me. How dare he talk to me? I can hear myself thinking like that. What is it that is aware of that? And I'm only asking this question not to get an not to have an answer, but to just notice and to trust in that just that which is aware and listen. That's pure. That's that's pure purity. You can't get behind it. You can't. You can't see it. You can only be that. Okay, so, so you're. You, it's like you're. You're beginning to trust in just the, in the in the purity of being aware. In which, the various mental conditioning, emotional habits, can be seen and accepted and relinquished and, and li liberated from those habits. And then the experience of liberation from those habits is peace. You begin to, when, when you, like with anger, for example, when, when you feel angry and you, you accept that feeling, and you're not trying, you're not, you're not analyzing, judging, and making any moral judgments or value judgments about it whatsoever, you just like this, feel like this, it's this way. And when it ceases, when you when you when it when it because it arise, has arisen, it ceases. That cessation of anger, it feels very peaceful. But notice that that, that you, we don't tend to notice the absence of anger. We're, we're aware when we're angry, I'm angry now, but when we're not angry, we don't, we don't contemplate the, the mind that where there's no anger in it. Or we tend to think of ourselves in terms of, I'm an angry person. No, really. You know, I have a lot of problems with anger and I'm an angry person. And then the assumption is that, that I'm an angry person all the time. Isn't it? It seems like I'm, you've, we've, I've defined myself and I'm this way and, it's, and when I'm asleep, I'm an angry person. <laughs> and even when I'm not angry, I'm an angry person. So we've, we've, we've kind of prejudiced ourselves to see ourselves only from, from, a, from a bias, uh, from a perception that we, we create. 
But notice when, so that this, this awareness then allows you to, to recognize non-anger, non-greed, non-delusion, non-grasping, non-self. It's like nothing. Because it's not, it's not, it's not like somebody or being something or attaining anything. It's, it's recognizing the way things are. So then you have the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. The Buddha sees, knows the truth of the way it is. That's your refuge. Also, this, this will help you too to learn how to resolve a habit, emotional habit. That, I mean, we all have have uh, like immaturity and and uh, habit, emotional habits that we maybe not don't want at all, but we can't help. We don't know how to resolve them. We just try to suppress them, maybe. We spend years trying to go through therapies and understand why do I feel lonely? Why? <laughs> this kind of thing. But in in meditation, you can actually begin to as you as you begin to trust in this awareness, in this purity. And reflect. Then you, then you can also begin to accept your emotions, no matter how immature, silly, or childish they might be. You're not judging them in terms of of yourself anymore. You're just recognizing their presence and their absence, and that resolves them. It's just not you're, you're no longer identifying with them or or making judgments about them. But when we do, like if we say. You know, I have these immature emotional habits. Then, like like with anger, it's like you you think you have you're that way all the time, even when you're asleep. We tend to see ourselves in, in very fixed ways, in, as if as if anger or immaturity were were a constant factor in my life. And even when it's not there, I'm still that way. Because we, we create ourselves into a person that is that way. We, we assume we are that all the time. But when you're actually observing the way it is, you realize those things come and go, and that's not, you know, that's not, that's not what you are. It's not yours. And the more you, you, you realize that, then the, you can liberate yourself from, from those, uh, those wrong views about yourself, those assumptions that you are a permanent something, something or other. Now this, it's interesting to notice in the 
I was in, as I said, I was in the States recently, and in the States they've done a lot of this uh, Burmese Vipassana practice, Mahasi Sidal practice. Uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph and those people have, have taken that, that kind of practice, and, and uh, so that there's hundreds of thousands of people that have been practicing Vipassana in the States, according to that star. Interesting to see the result. For some of them, have, you know, they've been doing it for years. And the thing I is most noticeable is that the emphasis has always been on the, the suffering, but that nobody that there isn't anybody aware of non-suffering. It's amazing to me. So, the uh, emphasis, like, like, oftentimes the way uh, the, the teaching comes across is everything's suffering. And you've got to look at suffering, confront suffering. But there's still this idea that I am somebody who suffers. And so after years, you're still suffering. And you're not noticing when there's not suffering. So there's been a movement towards finding ways of non-suffering through other techniques, like they've gone into Punjaji in, in uh, India, Hindu teacher, and uh, the Zogchen in the Tibetan system, and uh, various uh, other ways of, of, of that, that, are, that are conveying transcendence as the goal, rather than just uh, an obsession with suffering. But in, in the Theravada school, it, it, it's all there too. But it, it, that when, when we emphasize suffering as, a, as the, uh, you know, it, it, the mind then tends to see, project suffering onto everything. Like we think, this is, all life is suffering. If we're coming from a, this kind of uh, assumption, everything's suffering. So then we think, uh, those flowers. That's dukkha, that's suffering. What am I doing? I'm projecting on my mind, I'm taking the word suffering and I'm putting it onto those flowers. That's what's happening, isn't it? And then the reason is because, well, you know, they're pretty now, but in the, in tomorrow they're going to not look so good, and then they're going to <laughs> will, then they're going to rot and stink, and don't get attached and don't even look at them, because you You'll only be disappointed and suffer. <coughs> so what you're doing is you're, 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 you're creating suffering, you're projecting the idea of suffering onto everything. But was the Buddha teaching that? He, he didn't say everything is suffering, he said there is suffering. He's pointing to, to suffering as a kind of the goal, the thing that kind of jabs you, that awakens you. You know, the pain of life. That, that, that jabbed you and you, you suddenly feel what's going on here but it's not to 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 come from an uh, from the position that everything is suffering but to use the experience of suffering to realize non-suffering to 
to use the, the sense of yourself, your personality and all that, to, to, will take you to non-self, to realize the non-self. Attachment. Notice what attachment is. Not to think you shouldn't be attached to something. How many of you think that as Buddhists you shouldn't be attached to anything? You're coming from an idea, isn't it? An idea that if I were really practicing, I wouldn't be attached to anything. Buddhists shouldn't be attached. But that's not it. We're, we're, we're observing attachment, and then, then you realize non-attachment. <coughs> it's till you accept and understand, recognize attachment, that, you, that you'll be able to realize non-attachment. It's not through trying to hold to a view that you shouldn't be attached to anything. That doesn't work. Then uh, desire and desirelessness. I, mean, I shouldn't have any desires. Desire is bad, but I'm full of desires. I, I can't practice properly because I'm full of desires, and I shouldn't. And that's the self I holding to the view that I am somebody that has a lot of desires. Even when I'm asleep, I'm just hotbed of desires. <laughs> but instead of, of just uh, hating yourself for having desires, what is desire? You know, study it, investigate, notice, contemplate. To, to contemplate, to recognize things, you have to accept them, you have to embrace them. So this, this, this kind of openness, this intuitive awareness, allows you to accept even the worst possible things it's, 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 uh, in your conscious experience. You can, pain and misery and all the rest, is, uh, you can accept that in consciousness. And then, but then it, and then with wisdom, with the use of wisdom and understanding of Dhamma, then, then you, you, uh, you can let go of those things. And then you realize non-grasping. You realize desirelessness, viraga. Not through trying to get rid of desire, but through understanding desire. Non-dukkha, non-suffering, is not through getting rid of suffering, but through recognizing suffering and no longer grasping it. No longer creating suffering out of ignorance. So this is very important, the emphasis on this is to realize that the aim of Nibbana is not something, uh, don't see it as something uh, so high that, that you're, you as a person feel totally kind of despairing. Uh, and, and, in, uh, and incapable, nor to think that you as a person is going to, uh, is going to realize Nibbana. Because that can be another ego trip. I'm going to get there. First American that realized Nibbana. Another winner. Another first. Somebody else is realizing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a matter of, of 
of attainment. It's not an attainment, uh, but uh, a, a realization. Now this practice also integrates well into life, into activity. It's not, it's, uh, you know, like, like living in at Amravati, where, you know, what, say, I've, the past, since I've been in England, I've had all these responsibilities for years, over 20 years now, in Thailand, before in Thailand, and in, <coughs> here in England. And the, the, you know, where I'm very busy, uh, you know, having to do things. But this is not an obstruction to the practice. People do think that it is, but it's not. If you think it is, then it is. Mm -hmm. I was recently telling somebody about, uh, you know, just say, this is my 19th Vasa in England, so, so I was, uh, came here in 1977 and, and, and with all kinds of uh, ideas and so forth and then, then, then I found also I had to work through a lot of resentment, like uh, I used to find myself when things would get difficult or things weren't going so well, or things would go wrong, and I think, I shouldn't have come here. I want to go off to the Himalayas and live in a cave. I want to be a Milarepa. I want to, I don't want to be uh, head of a monastery. And usually this cave in the Himalayas is my, is my image, or when I want to get out of everything. So something would, something would go wrong, somebody complain about something, or I wouldn't, uh, uh, oh, I want to go off to the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> and then I could see, see the, uh, see the resentment I had about having to be uh, in a, in such a position all the time. Then how to take that resentment itself? to see, to realize non-resentment. These are, the, these are how to, to make this thing work for you. Take what you have, what you're feeling, notice it, not, and, you know, for a long time I didn't even notice I was, uh, had this resentment. <laughs> Every time I began to really notice it, and, and then, then it could take me to a realization of non-resentment. So then you, you notice like non-resentment, non-self, non-anger, non-greed, non-grasping, desirelessness. Then you, then you realize the path, the way to develop. Because then it's very clear what, how to practice with life with the way you are. We ought to learn from the way we are, with all our virtues and vices.
and from the way life is for us and the people we're living with and the conditions around us. They may not be what you want, but none of them are obstructions to enlightenment. So during this uh, week here at uh, Western Summer School, uh, just try to try to develop an awareness around this silence. At first, it might be frustrating, but I mean, don't don't make it into a big thing, like you know, force it. But just begin to just recognize it and relax with it. It's just just attention, a, 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 a gentle attentiveness that you can sustain. It's not a will, like if you're too willful and you're, it's, you can't sustain that willfulness. It's too, you, you have to be willful with, with certain things like, like, you know, doing something heavy, you know, making yourself, like lift a log onto a lorry, something like that. But you can't sustain it, that kind of strength or will. But this, this, this sustained awareness is, 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 this is a, a modern ecological jargon, sustainability. It's a, it's a gentle uh, awakened awareness that, that is subtle, and it's not, and it's not like, it's not difficult in the fact that it, it, you have to train yourself years in order to realize. It's a matter of recognizing it and using it and, and developing attitudes that, that help to sustain, like patience is, is helpful. Being patient with yourself, with the world, being uh, honest, uh, being willing to, to look at things, uh, look at what you don't like or don't want, to just be able to accept uh, discomfort or embarrassment or or uh, feelings uh, negative feelings being able to to just endure with them till they go not trying to to ignore them and we all like to live, have problems with families in monasteries my family is a lot of problems, and you get you get uh, uh, difficult things and and uh, happening, and so then so you sustain your attention on it, being able to to accept what is happening, even if you don't like what's happening. You can you can sustain, you can be with it, and and that's very humbling in a way, and very helpful, and very strengthening. And it's often like through the, the very difficult times that you gain incredible strength in your practice. If you're willing to endure and uh, bear with the, the dukkha until it, till you realize non-dukkha. 
So don't think of the Buddha's teaching as everything's dukkha. Because if you start from there, then everything will be dukkha. <laughs> you, you, you were, you've made it that way. <laughs> Any questions? Well, there's this, this language problem, really. Like, like the, uh, like becoming enlightened is, is the word itself isn't right. Becoming, it's being, <laughs> using, using wisdom, like, like it's not attaining wisdom, but using wisdom. So you're like in, with emptiness for the tabarasa. It's, it's not trying to get it, but to be it. And so, so that that it it's uh, it's a different, you know, where the the thinking mind is in the becoming mind is always you get the idea and then you try to get it, become that way. But where this is more of a, a gentle act of faith, of just trusting in this awareness and openness and receptivity in the, in the present. Because you're, you're realizing that eternal present, you're, even time is, a, is, a, is seen and is no longer has much power over your consciousness. The, the perceptions of time. Because all there ever is is now, as far as experience goes, for all of us. You know, future is is a perception about what we what hasn't happened yet. The past is a memory, but it, it's all the the sense of past and future are always present in the now. So that which is aware. Well, it will it will allow you to to reflect to contemplate things in terms of of the way they are in Dharma teaching, which will then the enlightenment is seeing things as they are rather than than attaining something. <laughs> <laughs> 